0: Father, we we praise you that, that awesome thought that we can be in your presence. And Lord, as we look around the world and we see the uncertainties and we see the upheaval and, and uncertainties, Lord, we know one thing for certain, you are there, so we praise you. Amen. Well, if you weren't here for the, the first session this morning, um, you missed a lot. I know those of you that were here, your brains are still full, but uh, we've got another hour of uh, hearing from, from Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who we are so blessed to have with us. You know, I was thinking as we were sitting, I remember as a young boy sitting in church when somebody would come to talk about prophecy and end times, um, it would scare the living daylights out of me. Um, and I remember as a 13-year-old boy one time sitting and hearing a guy talk about end times and just, just weeping because I knew I wasn't ready. But you know, as when I know Jesus Christ as my Savior and I see the things going on in the world, you know, I don't have to fear. You know, there's a joy that we have in in waiting for Jesus Christ's return. So this morning as as Jimmy comes, you know, there are going to be those of you here that that will be like I was as a thirteen year old boy, scared because you're not ready. But I'm here to tell you you can be, and you don't have to fear. And you can, there's that point where you look forward to his coming. And I hope that's where you're at today, that you're looking forward to Christ's return. Uh, but we are very blessed to have Jimmy DeYoung with us. Jimmy, would you come, and I'd like to pray with you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for my brother. Lord, I thank you for the wisdom you've given him. And, and, and Lord, just for his ministry and, and his life. And I pray again, Lord, just that you would continue to use him. Lord uh, inspire and challenge us through his word um, Lord and, and I pray that we would just just, Lord, get a glimpse into um, again this morning what your word says and, and, and what the end times hold for us and Lord that we wouldn't fear, wouldn't be scared but we would be looking forward to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus
1: Christ Amen Thank you Pastor Booker Tov You don't speak when you're spoken to? I just said good morning in Hebrew. No, 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 I said Hebrew, not English. Boker Tov, try that. Not broken toe, Pastor. Boker, B-O-K-E-R, Tov, T-O-V. Try that again, Boker Tov. What you literally said translated is morning good. Boker is... Hebrew for morning, and tov is Hebrew for good. So you said morning good, but uh, it's to mean good morning. Because remember in English we read left to right, in Hebrew you read right to left. So we speak one way, they think the other way or something like that. Boker tov, try it one more time. Boker tov, now when you get to heaven you'll be able to greet Jesus in the morning. Say shalom. shalom. Say it twice. One shalom is a greeting. Judy and I have lived in Jerusalem for the last 20 years, and when we see somebody, shalom. We have a conversation, we depart, shalom, shalom. You can tell whether they're coming or going, real easy. One shalom, they're coming, two they're going. But, uh, and by the way, don't you dare say shalom, shalom until I get finished, if you don't mean mine. I will give you the signal when I am finished. Uh, Speaking of Judy, I don't know if you've seen something beautiful this morning, Honey, would you stand up, please? My wife of 51 years right there in the back, Miss Judy, and uh, we are just thrilled to be here. By the way, uh, 51 years, we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary last year, and it was such a neat experience for us. We had all of our family there. We had a bunch of ministry friends. John Ankerberg and his family came over, Kay Arthur from Precepts. They all came over because they're in Chattanooga. So we had a neat time, and everything was going great till one guy spoiled it for me as far as I'm concerned. He walked up to Judy, and he said to Judy, you've been married to him for 50 years? Hello, dum-dum, we're having a 50th wedding anniversary party. What do you think, a 50th wedding anniversary party? But then he got really down and dirty. He said, how have you stayed married to him for 50 years? Well, my Judy's pretty sharp. She came back real quickly. Well, my husband is an itinerant preacher, which means he's gone half of the time. (laughs) Well, that would give us 25 years together, and Judy didn't quit there. She jabbed him again. She said, and when he's home, he sleeps a third of the time, so that gives us 17 years together. He works a third of the time. That gives us about eight years together. I send him to the store a lot. We've actually been together for two and a half years. And you can sustain a marriage if you're not together that much. But uh, we're honored to be here with you, looking forward to the time we're going to have studying God's prophetic word. I'm honored uh, that Pastor Wood asked me to come for what I consider a very wise move on the pastor's part, to set aside a Sunday to focus on Bible prophecy. This is very important. It's one-third, as I told those in the Sunday school hour, one-third of the entire Bible, Bible prophecy. And so it behooves us to spend time studying it. As Pastor mentioned, at 6 o'clock, we're going to have our second service. But at 5 o'clock, we're going to have Prophecy Q&A. And I would love for you to be able to come back at 5 o'clock. We can still get a quick nap in. I know because I take a quick nap on Sunday. And uh, come back at 5 o'clock. Do me a favor, if you will. People will be coming in for the 6 o'clock service. So if you will, if you're here for Prophecy Q&A... Come down front and sit right here in these two sections. Do not spread out all over the auditorium. Come down, come down front. Did I get that across? I promise at the end I will release you and you can go back to your assigned seat where you've been for the last 10 years. But come down front if you will and we'll spend some time in Q&A and then we'll break for a few moments before the service at 6 o'clock and then we'll come back and study the Word of God. This evening, I hope you can be here. It's going to be a very important time. I'm going to be studying with you what the Word of God has to say about the last event on God's calendar of activities before Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. There's something that the United States government is going to do within two months that is key to understanding how this is all going to unfold. We have been in this section of the world for a number of years, I'm talking about the United States and their military forces. It is a focus on many of the politicos' minds as they think about the scenario. Our Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, was just in this location in the world and it has a very significant impact upon what Bible prophecy says is going to happen. So I hope you can be with us this evening, a very important study in the Word of God. I hope you can come back at 6 o'clock. 5 o'clock for the Q&A, 6 o'clock for the evening service. I want to uh, thank with you a few moments. Pastor asked me, and well, actually he asked my daughter Jody who sets up our schedule for us, What I would be speaking on, and she told him what I have told her to tell all pastors. I speak on current events in light of biblical prophecy. What is the most significant current event unfolding that has a relationship to Bible prophecy? Now, I do not allow the current event to drive my understanding of Bible prophecy, but we'll study a passage of Scripture and we'll look at that passage of Scripture in light of these current events, and see how they two dovetail together and see if there's any relationship with what's going on. I want to look at uh, three countries that have been really uh, doing a lot of things that I believe is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. About three weeks ago, there were some major street demonstrations in the city of Cairo, Egypt, and uh, also Alexandria, Egypt, uh, the people of Egypt went to the streets. they had a president, Hosni Mubarak, for 32 years at that point in time. By the way, the Israeli government, both Shimon Peres, the president, and Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, said that uh, Hosni Mubarak was the best friend that Israel had had over the last 30 years. Many people say that Hosni Mubarak was somewhat of a dictator and uh, did a lot of persecution of people In Egypt, some of the Egyptians complaining about that. I have to tell you this much. I understand that some of those things are true as well, but I can tell you for 32 years, there was not a major war in the Middle East. Hosni Mubarak, the leader at that time of the largest Arab country, The Arab country of Egypt has 88 million people in it. That's the largest of the 23 Arab countries in the entire Middle East. And he kept a lid on any type of flare-up, which would be a regional war of any type for the last 32 years. Every president of the United States sat alongside of Hosni Mubarak and praised him for that. Every prime minister of Israel went to Sharm el-Sheikh, which is on the Red Sea coast of Egypt, where President Hosni Mubarak had a villa where he met with world leaders. And every one of those Israeli leaders sat and talked with him about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So he was a key player in the Middle East. But because of the demonstrations they brought down Hosni Mubarak, the military rose up, deposed him. He's now under house arrest. There was a group of people on the sidelines called the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood, you need to know something about them because they're going to play a major role in what's going to happen in Egypt. In September of this year, it's already been decided, there will be an election for the parliament, an election for president of Egypt. This is a very important Aspect of how the next government is going to have a relationship with the Middle East, but in particular with the Jewish state of Israel. The Muslim Brotherhood, started in 1928, is an Islamic fundamentalist terrorist organization. Let me give proof text to that. First of all, Yasser Arafat, you may have heard of Yasser Arafat, the man who started the Palestinian Liberation Organization. He was one of the world renowned terrorists, and Yasser Arafat was a product of the Muslim Brotherhood. As a teenage boy in Cairo where he lived, he studied with the clerics of the Muslim Brotherhood. He came to his very fundamental terroristic Islamic ideology through the Muslim Brotherhood. In 1973, there was a group that came into existence, a sheik named Yassin. He was a blind sheik. Sheik Yassin part of the Muslim Brotherhood moved from Egypt into the Gaza Strip, and he started an organization called Hamas. Hamas is the terrorist organization who, for this last week, has been firing rockets over into Israel. Overnight, they, they fired 130 rockets trying to kill people in Israel. On Tuesday of last week, they fired a mortar at a school bus that had school children in it trying to wipe them out. That is a part of the Muslim Brotherhood. Al- Al-Sakhari, who's the number two man in Al-Qaeda under Osama bin Laden, he is one of the team that assassinated Anwar Sadat 33 years ago, before Hosni Mubarak came to power. He is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood has 600,000 members in Egypt. Now, of 88 million people, that's not a lot, but this is the largest organized group of people in Egypt ready to come to power and lead Egypt. That's the political situation as far as Egypt is concerned. Another nation I'd like to look at is Libya. Colonel Gaddafi of Libya has been in place there as leader after he overthrew the present regime back 42 years ago. He is a more treacherous man than Hosni Mubarak ever thought about being. Hosni Mubarak was somewhat civilized and uh, Colonel Gaddafi is uh, just a treacherous man. He in fact called for going into Benghazi and killing every human being in there if they didn't submit under his leadership. He has been slaughtering people along the way The people, the opposition, is rising up against him. But the problem with Libya, we don't know who the opposition is. They're not telling us who they are representing. We do have some information coming out that al-Qaeda is playing a key role in the opposition to overthrow uh, Colonel Gaddafi. We understand, and by testimony from an article I read in the New York Times, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is standing by ready to go in and deal with Uh, with the vacuum, the power vacuum that will be created when Qaddafi, if he indeed, is taken out. We're watching the United States, the European Union, NATO, and the United Nations, in fact, trying to deal with this situation. In Syria, the other country that I want to talk about, Bashar Assad took over after some 30 years. The leadership was in his father's hand, Hafez al-Assad. Hafez al-Assad was trying to create uh, the leadership of the entire Arab world for him. He had brought Libya, excuse me, Lebanon into his bailiwick. He was uh, referring to Lebanon at the time of his death as Greater Syria. And Bashar Assad took over for him now some 40 years. Uh, this one family has been ruling Syria They have been killing protesters in the street. His military brought in Hezbollah. Hezbollah is the notorious terrorist organization in southern Lebanon coming out of Iran. The Hayatollah uh, back in 1982 sent Hezbollah in to take out the Jewish people and to help the spread of the Iranian revolution to take over the entire Middle East. And every single intelligence person that I read or talk with tells me that Hezbollah, a part of the Iranian military might, is reaching out through the Middle East and trying to take control of that area. Now, that's the political situation as it relates to Egypt, Libya, and Syria. But I told you, I don't allow current events to drive my understanding of Bible prophecy. I look to the Word of God to see what it has to say, and from this point on, that's what I'd like to do. So take your Bibles, if you will, and go over to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 is one of the most prophetic passages in all of Scripture. I don't know if you've had time to study uh, the book of Daniel, much less Daniel chapter 11. But Daniel chapter 11 is Daniel someplace in his late 80s, early 90s, as he allows the Spirit of God to breathe into him prophetic passages. In chapter 10, you see in Daniel chapter 11 where Daniel had spent about three weeks on his face before the Lord, not eating, fasting, not even drinking water, for the purpose of beseeching the Lord to give him some information about what's going to happen in the future. In other words, prophecy. Daniel 11 is that passage that the Lord gave him to deal with a period of about 2,500 years. Just quickly, let me show you, let me touch base with those countries that I was talking about. Look at Daniel 11 and start in verse 42. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and upon the land of Egypt, and it shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans. Now, I want you to notice that. Up here a bit earlier in chapter 11, it talks about Syria, and I'm going to bring that to your attention. But let me just give you a quick overview of the book of Daniel chapter 11. Go back to verse 2 just a moment. Daniel 11, if a critic wants to go after the prophet Daniel and say that Daniel did not write the book, They go to chapter 11 because there are prophecies about world personalities who will come on the scene. And at this time in history, uh, Daniel did not know who these people were, the time that he received these prophecies. Uh, Let me just show you how unique Bible prophecy is and in the life of the prophet Daniel. Look at verse 2. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth king shall be far richer than they all, and by his strength and through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now that's talking about a Persian king who comes to power. He will be the fourth of the Persian kings. He will be far richer than the three previous kings, and he's going to antagonize Greece to the extent they will attack his kingdom or his empire. This is talking about King Ahasuerus. If you've ever read the book of Esther, in the first chapter you can read about his prominence. He controlled 127 provinces all the way from India in the east to Spain in the west. King Ahasuerus was the richest of all the Persian kings. In fact, you take the three previous kings, add up all of their wealth, and King Ahasuerus was much richer than all of them put together. King Ahasuerus came on the scene 57 years after Daniel wrote the prophecy. And King Ahasuerus did antagonize the Greeks for the Grecian leader to come to power and set in place the Grecian Empire. And so, Daniel, 57 years before the fact, God breathed into him prophecy that would ultimately become history. He pre wrote history by 57 years. Look at verse 3. Here's the second king. Actually, five personalities here in chapter 11 we'll look at. Here's the second king in verse 3. And a mighty king shall stand up and shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Now, this could be almost any king at that time in history. We're talking about uh, 2,500 years ago in that area anyway. And who would this king be? Well, it could be anybody, a description of any king, but let me just read the next verse. It gives us more specific information. Verse four, and when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. Well, now we know who that was talking about. That was talking about Alexander the Great, the leader of the Grecian Empire. You remember King Ahasuerus provoked the Greeks so they would try to take them over. As a 21-year-old ragtag military leader, he put together a ragtag military operation, and in 11 years, they conquered the known world. Alexander the Great became the most powerful leader in all of the world, head of the Grecian Empire at 32 years of age. He went to a city called Babylon on the shores of the Euphrates River, which would be located what is today modern-day Iraq, and there he set up his Grecian Empire. At 32 years of age, he died of syphilis and a drunkard. And when he died, his kingdom was divided into four parts, north, south, east, and west. And so Daniel, 200 years before the fact, wrote about Alexander the Great. Every single thing and the prophecy that Daniel gave Fit the test in Deuteronomy chapter 18. God said through the prophet Moses, If a man is speaking for me, everything he says will come true in absolute detail. And everything thus far, 57 years before King Ahasuerus came on the scene, and he was far richer than the rest of them in antagonized Greece, that's exactly what happened in Ahasuerus. In Alexander the Great, Daniel was right on target about his prophecy. Look at uh, verse 5 here. But the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be great dominion. And in the end of the years they will join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north. It's talking about two of these Four divisions, north, south, east, and west. In essence, if you study history, you'll realize that when the Grecian Empire was divided, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were very powerful. The eastern and western kingdom were just nebulous entities, basically. They were there, but not a whole lot of noise coming out of them. But at the point in time this is talking about, King the man who is in charge, Antiochus the Great, the king of the north, marries the daughter of the king of the south, and they come together and form a coalition. So the two powerful parts of this four-part Grecian empire come to power. The king's name was Antiochus the Great. He did marry the daughter of the king of the south. And in this context, you study where they were located. The king of the north was what we know as modern-day Syria, The king of the south is what we know as modern day Egypt. Syria and Egypt formed a coalition by a marriage of the king's daughter in the south and the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, came to power. By the way, 300 years before that happened, Daniel prophesied it. He laid it out, how everything would happen. There's much more I could bring to your attention. I'm trying to just give you the mountain peaks here in Daniel 11. Go to verse 21. Here's the third uh, or fourth of these kings, verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. This is another king that's going to come to power. Much prophecy is laid out here. I'll not give you all of it. Look at verse 30. For the ships of Shetim shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. The holy covenant would be the holy covenant that Moses received from God for the Jewish people. So shall he do, he shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. He would spend time with apostate Jews. Verse 31, And arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. That's the abomination of desolations. What is it talking about? 168 BC on Keslov 25, Keslov is the Jewish month of December on our Christian calendar. On December the 25th, 168 BC, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes meaning the madman, Antiochus Epiphanes would come to power. He would come to power by going into Jerusalem, walking into the temple, desecrating the temple by taking his dagger, pulling it out of the sheath, taking a pig, an unkosher animal, slitting the belly of the pig, taking the innards of the pig and throwing it on the altar and desecrating that altar at the temple in Jerusalem. The prophet referred to it as the abomination of desolation. It's a prototype of the one that will happen during the seven year tribulation period. Antiochus Epiphanes did this in 168 BC, December the 25th. Look at verse 32 and such as do wickedly against the covenant shall be corrupted by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Well, there's a prophecy again that fits into this category. 360 years before the fact, Daniel writes about Antiochus Epiphanes walking into the temple, desecrating the temple, 168 B.C., December the 25th. But God said there will be a mighty group that will come to power and overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes. Those people were the Maccabees. Matthias Maccabee, Judas Maccabee, all the Maccabee brothers, they did come to power. And on 165 B.C., December the 25th, 3 years to the day exactly these Maccabees rose up they ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple out of Jerusalem out of Israel and they went into the temple reconsecrating the temple they cleaned it up they found a flask of virgin olive oil that's what you light the menorah with the seven branch candelabra it had not been burning for 3 uh, for these 3 years they went over to the seven branch candelabra took this virgin olive oil poured it into Uh, The lamps, so they could light the lamps. Those lamps should have been stayed lighted one day. Instead, they stayed lighted for eight days. And thus you have the Jewish holy day of Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, the feast of lights. And Daniel wrote about it 360 years before the fact, just exactly like he said it would happen. Fifty-seven years before the fact, King Ahasuerus. Two hundred years before the fact, Alexander the Great. Three hundred years before the fact, Antiochus the Great. Three hundred and sixty years before the fact, Antiochus Epiphanes. Bible prophecy fulfilled exactly in detail as it was written gives us a base, a confidence upon which we can accept additional Bible prophecy, yet to be fulfilled, to be fulfilled just like the rest of it. Go to verse 36. Here's the last personality that's going to come to power. He's called by 27 names. Here's one of them. And the king shall do according to his will. This individual, a great and powerful personality during the seven-year tribulation period, will be known as the willful king. Notice what he's going to do. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak marvelous things, notice, marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation, the abomination of desolation, be accomplished. This individual is coming to power in the seven-year period of time. Look back up here. If you were here for Sunday school, you recognize the reason for these two microphone stands in a pulpit. This is the next event on God's calendar of activities. It's a thing, an activity called the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible, but don't get uptight. Neither is the word trinity in the Bible, and we all believe in the trinity, don't we? In fact, the word Bible is not even in the Bible, but the activity is described. There in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trumpet God sounds, and we're out of here to be with him. The rapture is the next event on God's calendar of activities. By the way, the rapture has not taken place yet. I can guarantee that. Pastor and I are still here. Should we disappear? You got a little problem. By the way, if the rapture does take place, Mark, would you just cut the lights off, close up and lock the doors, and go on home? The rapture of... Oh, I'm, I'm teasing, Mark. I'm sure you'll be with us. Don't worry about it. I don't want to get you scared again, man. like you were the rapture, the next event to happen. We're someplace just prior to the rapture. There's not one prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture of the church. The rapture is the next thing to happen. And then there's a seven-year period of time. It's described in 16 chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19. I'll go through that tonight with you and tell you the last event in that seven-year period of time before Christ comes back. This is the seven-year tribulation, the rapture, the seven years. And then we all get on white horses, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, and we come back to the earth. We're going to ride white horses. I look at some of you grayheads out there, and you say, hey, I've never ridden a horse, and I don't want to ride one now at my age. Don't worry about it, honey. At this point in time, you have a resurrected, glorified body. You fall off a horse eight times. You wouldn't hurt yourself. Just get back on and let's ride. We're coming back with Jesus. We come back to the earth. This is the return of Christ. Then there's a thousand-year period of time. This is the kingdom period, followed by that microphone stand representing the great white throne judgment when Jesus Christ will be the judge sentencing those rejecting him in the lake of fire. Here in chapter 11 of of, uh, the book of Daniel, starting in verse 36 through verses 45, we see the fifth of the personalities who comes to power. We see a little bit about him. He's called the willful king here in chapter 11, verse 36, and he is going to blaspheme God. Chapter 13 of the book of Revelation refers to the one, the beast out of the sea, who will blaspheme God. That will be his design over in, Revelation, uh, over in Daniel chapter 7, it talks about him speaking great things in verse 25 against the Most High God. In chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In chapter 9, he's called the prince that shall come. Here in chapter 11, he's called the willful king. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ refers to him as the false messiah. Over in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle Paul calls him the wicked one, the son of perdition, the man of sin. In the book of Revelation, as I said, chapter 13, verse 1, the beast out of the sea. You know him best by the title given to him in 1 John chapter 2, the Antichrist. I believe the Antichrist is alive and well on planet Earth. And that's the next personality that Daniel wrote about. He was absolutely on target with King Ahasuerus, Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes. Every detail was fulfilled. And I'm saying to you, this prophecy will be fulfilled as well. The Antichrist on the scene. I do believe he's alive and well. Go back to chapter 7 just a moment. Let me show you a couple of bits of information about how he comes. Chapter 7, and Daniel has a dream. He has a dream of the Gentile world powers. You might remember them if you've studied Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. It's talking about a winged lion. That's referring to the Babylonian Empire, which did come to power. And then he's talking about in verse 5, a bear with three ribs in his mouth. That's the Medo-Persian Empire. History tells us that was the case. The Medes and the Persians defeated the Babylonians. In verse 6, he talks about a leopard which had on its back four wings and it had four heads. That would be the Grecian Empire. Remember, uh, the four heads would represent the four divisions of Alexander the Great's kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, when he died at 32 years of age. The wings on the back of a leopard, the leopard is a very fast animal on the face of the earth. The fastest is the cheetah. The leopard would be next fastest, but you put four wings on him and that's talking about him being very, very fast. And that's talking about how quickly, it was only 11 years that Alexander the Great came from a nobody to the emperor of the entire world. Quickly, he moved into that position. In chapter 7, verse 7, it talks about an awesome beast, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and had great iron teeth. Now, we know in retrospect, by looking back in history, You have the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. They were the leaders of the world at the time of Jesus Christ. But look at the last phrase in verse 7. And it had ten horns. I'm going to interpret that for you in just a moment, not by my knowledge, but by simply reading the Word of God. You don't have to go by what I say, but we do have to go by what the Word of God has to say. We'll get to that in a moment, but look at verse 8. And I considered these horns, the ten horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in the horns there were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. This is talking about a personality. He is referred to as the little horn. He comes to power as a leader of the world. Go to verse 23. Here, the angel Gabriel is going to interpret for Daniel what he saw in the vision. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, now that would be the Roman Empire, which shall be diverse from all the kingdoms and shall devour, notice this, the whole earth. Now wait a minute, that part of the prophecy has never been fulfilled. The Roman Empire, remember what it controlled? It controlled the Mediterranean region. It controlled all the nations around the Mediterranean. It controlled as far west as Great Britain today. It controlled as far south as Ethiopia. It controlled every nation that borders the Mediterranean Sea. That was the Roman Empire. But this verse says, "...it shall devour the whole earth." and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Look at verse 24. Here's how that part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And the ten horns out of this kingdom, remember verse 7, the ten horns that come out, the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. That is yet future. Prophecy teachers refer to this as the revived Roman Empire. They will come back to power because in their original state, they never control the whole world, but they must come to power to control the entire world. And so it is, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings, that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diversed from the first, and he shall subdue three kings." Now, notice the next verse, verse 25, and he, the he find this one who comes to power, he shall speak great words against the most high God. This is the description of the Antichrist. And so this little horn of chapter 7, verse 8, is the Antichrist. I gave you the names already. I'll not do it again. The Antichrist is coming to power. He comes out of the ten horns, which would be the revived Roman Empire. I happen to believe that the European Union is most likely at least the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. I'm not saying it's the fulfillment of the prophecy, but it's at least the infrastructure, because it's building upon the exact geographical location of the old Roman Empire. Now we have 27 member states in the European Union, but President Sarkozy two years ago introduced the Mediterranean Union. The Mediterranean Union is 17 states, including 16 Muslim states and one Jewish state, Israel. They make that complete circle around the Mediterranean. That would make 44 states in the European Union because the Mediterranean Union is going to be integrated into the 27 member states. They say that when all of those states are in place, every single border of the old Roman Empire will have been met you'll have the exact replica of the old Roman Empire. But that's 44 states. They can't manage 44 states. They can't even manage in 27 states now. The Lisbon Treaty, I don't know if you know what that is, the Lisbon Treaty was the document that all 27 member states ratified. It's as such a constitution, how it's called a treaty, it was ratified in 2009 on November the 3rd. On November the 19th, that treaty called for an election of a leader. The man who was elected to lead the European Union was Prime Minister of Belgium. His name is Van Rompuy, Herman Van Rompuy. He came to power. And now they're going to integrate 44 other states. Herman Van Rompuy, somebody said, has the personality of a wet dish rag. And I think that's probably right. He's just a very mild-mannered man. I had another idea as to who this man would be, a leader in the world that I thought would come to power. Because you see, that little horn that comes out of those ten horns is the Antichrist. And the revived Roman Empire is going to bring forth the Antichrist. Let me tell you who I thought it was going to be. And I still, as I study the Scriptures, it says that this all is jailed. Oh, by the way, and they're going to divide into regions that Lisbon Treaty calls for regions because they can't operate out of 44 states, and they're going to have 10 regions according to the treaty. Exactly what the scripture says. I'll tell you who I thought was going to be the leader. Tony Blair. Tony Blair. The former prime minister of Great Britain. You mean Tony Blair, Jimmy, that's converted to Catholicism? That's right, him. He now has a relationship with the Pope. You mean Tony Blair, who has that foundation of faith, an adjunct professor at Yale University over in New England, a foundation of faith that brings resolution to world conflict through religion? That's him. You mean Tony Blair, who's the peace envoy for the Quartet, United States, European Union, United Nations, and Russia, has a headquarters in Jerusalem, trying to bring peace to the Middle East. You think that's Tony Blair? That's him. You see what he's doing? He's doing everything the Antichrist is going to do. When the Antichrist comes to power, he goes to Rome, Italy. He becomes the leader of the false religion, a mother-son cult. Tony Blair has a relationship now with the Catholic Church in Rome, Italy. You know what else the Antichrist does? He brings resolution to world conflict through this false religion. That's what Tony Blair's doing with his foundation of faith. Well, what about the Middle East? Well, the Antichrist brings peace to the Middle East. Tony Blair, doing every one of those things the Antichrist will do. You say, hey, man, you think Tony Blair... Is the Antichrist? Watch my lips. I do not know. What do you think, I am God? I don't know who the Antichrist is. All I did was grab your brain and pull it up here. Because you see, Tony Blair is doing everything the Antichrist will do. Now, he could be. I don't know if he is. He could be. But I'll tell you this. He's a perfect prototype for who will come to power as the Antichrist. I wanted to show you, after the rapture, the Antichrist comes on the scene. There's a man named Tony Blair who could take that position and fulfill all the scriptural qualifications for the Antichrist. Don't know if he is. By the way, will you go back to Daniel 11 with me just a moment? Let me show you something here. Daniel 11 verse 40. And at the time of the end, now that's a phrase that is talking about. If you'll look up here one more time, please. The time of the end is that period of time between the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. After the rapture, leading up to the second coming of Christ. Now, notice what Daniel said. He was right with four other people. I believe he's right with this last personality. Look what it says, verse 40. And at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. Who's the king of the south? I told you. That's modern-day Egypt. Who's the king of the north? Oh, that's modern-day Syria. Wow. And who's him? Well, we just introduced the Antichrist in verse 36. He, his, and him pronouns used 14 times in this passage of Scripture. All modify a noun. A pronoun modifies a noun. These he, his, and hims are modifying the Antichrist. And so what the text is telling us, at the time of the end, sometime in this period, the seven years after the rapture of the church, Syria and Egypt will take on Antichrist. When does that happen? Well, what does the Antichrist do? He confirms a peace treaty, Daniel 9, 27. And he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant, a treaty, with many, the Jewish people and their neighbors, for seven years. When the peace treaty is confirmed by the Antichrist, every Jew thinks the Messiah has come, and so he lays down his weapons. And who are these people? Egypt and Syria, north of Israel, south of Israel. And they attack. You think they would attack? Do I think they would attack did you not hear the litany of information I just gave you? What's happening politically in the Middle East? They're ready to attack. Bashar Assad, president of Syria, put 20,000 soldiers at the northeastern corner of Israel, Mount Hermon, ready to come in and take back the Golden Heights. He said the other day, we'll take the Golden Heights diplomatically or we'll take it militarily. They're going to come in. Who do you think Bashar Assad meets with all the time? President Hamad and Ejad of Iran. They have formed a coalition to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Bashar Assad is using Hezbollah. Hezbollah is north of Israel's border in Lebanon. They have more missiles than most nations in the world have. They're not even a nation ready to attack. The king of the north is going to come at him. Uh, How do you get him coming at the Antichrist, the young? Well, uh, let's say I promised one of you people that is vulnerable to somebody getting your case and, and hurting, harming you. Let's say one of these precious older ladies, I said to you, I'm going to sign a contract with you, dear lady, to protect you from any outside harm. I'm going to sign a contract. I'm going to be there for you. And then after I sign the contract, I tell her, listen, I've got to go away. I've got some other business over here. I leave the area. She comes under attack. Naturally, what would I do? I guarantee her safety. I would rush back to her aid to protect her. That's natural. That's what the Antichrist does. He confirms a peace treaty with Israel and his neighbors. Then he goes to Rome, Italy to build that false religion. He hears that there's trouble in the Middle East. Look here in verse 41. What would he probably do? Rush back into the Holy Land? Hello, let's see what it says. And he shall enter also into the glorious land. That's the land of Israel, the glorious land. He shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. He's going to go to the north. He's going to wipe out Syria who attacks the Jewish people because he confirmed a peace treaty with them a promise to take care of him. But look at here. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief children of Ammon. You remember your Bible geography? Who is Ammon, Moab, and Edom? Well, those are the three parts of modern day Jordan. Ammon in the north, Moab in the middle, Edom in the south. That's the three sections in biblical times of Jordan. And so it says, Antichrist comes in, wipes out Syria, comes down through Jordan, doesn't touch it. Why didn't he touch Jordan? Petra is located in southern Jordan. That's where God's promised to protect the Jewish people. So he didn't touch Jordan. Comes down through Jordan. Then look at the next verse, verse 42, where we started. And he shall stretch forth his hand also against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of the gold and over silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Look at the very next one. I'm going to stop with it. And the Libyans. Folks, there's many more nations that will form a coalition to attack Israel. What I am telling you, Syria, Egypt, and Libya are the original nations to come against Israel and each of those nations in a crisis. They could bring down their... Why was Hosni Mubarak brought down? Because he was a moderate Muslim leader. The Muslim Brotherhood are radical. They say, wipe out Israel. Muslim Brotherhood to take over Gaddafi. The Islamic element the fundamentalists to take over Syria. Be ready. You see, though you may not quite visualize the Antichrist, we can see Egypt, Syria, and Libya in activities written by the prophet who was perfect on four previous personalities in perfect detail. All prophecy fulfilled. One more thing and I'm going to close. By the way, it's 1134. I'll keep you posted on the time. I'm going to quit as soon as I finish, so just relax. Let me point out one more thing to you. In this scenario that I've just described to you, in a time when the Antichrist is on the scene, I believe he's alive and well. In a time when Libya, Egypt, and Syria are ready to attack Israel, I believe that time is on the stage right now. There's going to be one other activity happening. Look here in verse 45. In verse 45, here's what he says And he, now the Antichrist is he. Remember, I told you that. Each personality. Excuse me, each pronoun represents the Antichrist. And he, the Antichrist, shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Now, let me just define that verse for you. The glorious holy mountain, that phrase is used 18 times in the scripture. The glorious holy mountain is the temple mount in the city of Jerusalem. Look up here. If this is a map of the state of Israel, right in the middle of my poem would be Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Up north would be the Sea of Galilee. Down south, the Red Sea. To the east, the Dead Sea. To the west, the Mediterranean Sea. And so the prophet wrote, in the midst of the seas, in Jerusalem, on the holy mountain of God, the Temple Mount, plant the tabernacle of my palace there. What is that talking about? It's talking about the temple. Talking about the Jewish temple. Who's going to rule and reign from that temple? The Antichrist. He'll perform the abomination of desolation in it. They'll put an image to the Antichrist in the temple. He walks in, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, and claims to be God as he sits on the throne to be worshipped in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem. Hey, but man, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Hey, I know that, remember? I live there. No temple. What's on the spot for the temple is a gold dome building called the Dome of the Rock. Yes, that's the location where the next temple will stand. Yes, it has to be removed. Yes, there's going to be a war with the nations attacking the Jewish people. And they wipe out that Dome of the Rock. And after that battle is over with Libya, Syria, and Egypt, Antichrist says to the Jew, put your temple up. On the holy mountain of God. Are they ready? Let me tell you. Walked into Yeshiva the other day, a place of learning for Jewish young men, like a seminary. The rabbi was seated at his computer studying the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. I said, Rabbi, do you use that computer for anything else? He said, I do. I said, what? He said, I have a database on this computer. I said, a database of what? He said, of every male Jew that's qualified to be a priest. I said, man, you got 28,000 names on it? You see, I've studied about the temple. You need 28,000 priests to operate the temple. You got 28,000 names? He said, we do. I said, why? He said, because we've called them all to Jerusalem to study the priestly duties. I said, to do what? He said, to put up a temple. He got my attention. I said, what about those implements? The Mizrach. You know what the Mizrach is? It's a picture shaped item made out of pure gold and pure silver. That's what they put the sacrificial blood in to pour on the altar. It doesn't have a base; it's pointed so that you can't set it down because the blood would collagulate. They got 4,000 of them made out of pure gold and pure silver. You can ask the people that went to me. We went to the Temple Institute. They saw the Mizraq. It was right there in front of them. They saw the harps. 4,000 harps have been made. Every harp that they need I went over to Shoshana and Micah Harari's harp factory, and they told me about making the first harp for the first time in 2,000 years in Jerusalem. Micah was a finished carpenter. He made a harp. And an old rabbi showed up, held the harp in his arms, and he said, it was a 10-string harp. He said, look, the Talmud says when a 10-string harp shows up, it's a time for the coming of the Messiah. They got them all made. Every other, we saw the menorah, the 7 branch candelabra. It disappeared. It went back to Rome, Italy. They have replicated it. It's on display. We stood right in front of it when we were there. I talked with the rabbi, Rabbi Nachman Kahana. He's the man that had the computer. I said, Rabbi, I hear the Sanhedrin, the 70 wise Jewish scholars who operate the temple, I hear they've been reformed. Is that true? He said, is it true? I'm the president of it. I can show you that on video. It's right there in my briefcase. I said, Rabbi, I heard that they have made the garments for the priest. Is that right? He said, Jimmy, my heart, my uh, priestly garment is hanging in my closet, ready for me to put on and report to the temple mount. This man has been elected to be the high priest. They know where the Ark of the Covenant is. They got the ashes of the red heifer. Everything for the temple, by the way, I document all of that on this documentary video, Ready to Rebuild. It's all ready. Have you been paying attention? I started with a focus on a current event. Syria, Egypt, Libya. A crisis unfolding. I said within the confines of those events... There would be an Antichrist appear, I believe is alive. I then said, after that battle, they'll build their temple, and it's all ready. Stage is set. Every actor in place. Temples ready to be built. All the activities done. Egypt, Libya, Syria, ready to attack the Antichrist, on the scene. There's only one thing, one thing that must happen before they build the temple. These three nations attack and the Antichrist appears. Only one thing must happen. (laughs) And we're out of here to see Jesus. Now, excuse me, folks, and I can see a couple of you. Look, if I'm standing here, I can see your expressions. And I see a couple of you frowning. What is that, a smart aleck? No. Folks, I don't do a thing up here without a purpose. You know why I just did that? Let me tell you. To show you how quickly the rapture could happen. And there was another reason. To show you how surprised you're going to be. You should have seen you. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to get your attention. I'm preaching to you about an event that could happen before I leave this building. Half the congregation jumped when I did that. This dear brother almost jumped back in his wheelchair. I mean, and I'm not trying to be funny. I showed you how quick it could happen. Everything is set. It's about to happen. What do you do with that? What do you do? Pastor really set the stage. Remember what he said? 13 years of age, he was scared to death. Why? He wasn't ready. He told us, it's his testimony. He wasn't ready. How do you get ready for the rapture, Dr. DeYoung? Real simple. In fact, it's as simple as A, B, C. A, you admit you're a sinner. Not to him or not to me, we're both sinners. You admit it to a pure, perfect, holy God, He set the standard. I didn't set the standard. He set the standard. It's called the Ten Commandments. It's called His law. Oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to keep the Ten Commandments. I can prove that. You know what the first one and the second one and the third one are? You can't even, probably some of you keep those. But you remember the one, thou shall not lie? If you're in a building and you've ever told a lie, you broke the Ten Commandments. That was the standard. And that's what he said. You got to admit that. I had to admit it. Pastor was 13. I was 11 when I admitted it. B, you have to believe that Jesus Christ came, lived, and died, was buried, and resurrected from the dead. You see... When God set the standard, he knew nobody could keep it. So he said, I'm going to send my only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He sent his son who lived a pure, perfect, holy life without sin. And then he said to his son, son, you're going to become sin for all mankind. And Christ went to a cross. For me, do you read? remember some of the songs we sang in the worship time? For me, he went there. For you, pastor, for you, that 's how you got ready for the rapture you got to believe that he, he was that one, the savior, the sacrifice, who was crucified, buried, and resurrected. you see, he died to take away our sin, he resurrected from the dead, prove he was the one qualified to save us. and the third point, c, you got a call upon him, Romans 10 thirteen, very simple little verse in the scriptures whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In childlike faith, call upon the Lord. He will save you. And then you'll be prepared for that rapture, which could happen today. Father, thank you for your awesome book. It's an articulate Book, an authoritative book, an accurate book, an absolute book with details, divinely described details of the day of destiny, and it's describing this morning as we looked at Daniel chapter eleven, and that's only one chapter. In 1188 chapters of the Bible, at one chapter, we were able to discern the events that seemingly are describing today, Egypt, Libya, Syria, in an uproar at a time when the stage is set for Antichrist to appear and the temple to be built in Jerusalem. I just simply read from the text. That's what it says. Help us all to understand. I I know there's some people in here, Lord, that may not have understood everything I taught about Bible prophecy. I understand that. But I do believe they got the bottom line. Jesus is about to come. And in light of that, let us be prepared. Preparation. Very simple. With heads bowed and eyes closed and nobody looking. If you're not prepared, don't dare walk out of this building this morning. So, if you're not prepared, let me give you three simple little phrases to pray. Here's the first one Jesus, I'm a sinner. In childlike faith, just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, silently, in your heart. You see, that's admitting, believing. Well, here's that phrase. Jesus, you save sinners. The silence of this moment, just in your heart, say, Jesus, you save sinners. And here's how you call. Jesus, save me right now. In the quietness of the cathedral of your heart, just simply silently say, Jesus, save me right now. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you save sinners. Jesus, save me. Right now, if you pray those three little phrases upon the authority of the Word of God, I submit to you, Christ has saved you. You may not understand everything that happened, but the Lord has worked. Nobody's looking, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. You know what I'd love to have the privilege of doing? I'd love to have the privilege of just thanking the Lord for a decision you might have made. So nobody's looking. I will not embarrass you. I will not come to you. Nobody will point you out. But if you're in the building and you just ask Christ to save you so that I can thank the Lord for that happening, would you slip your hand up a moment? Let me see it. God bless you, buddy. God bless you, sir. God bless you, lady. God bless you, sir. God bless you, lady. God bless you, buddy. God bless you, ma'am. God bless you, sir. God bless you, son. God bless you. Lord, you know the hearts of these people. I do not. But just now, they've indicated, they've asked Christ to save them. Help them to understand what happened. Give them the wisdom as to how to live, the strength to live for you and the courage to let others know about it. Thank you for what you've done. And for others of us who are saved in this building, after understanding this passage of Scripture and what it seemingly is describing unfolding today, might we live pure lives as we await your return and productive lives as we eagerly Anticipate your soon coming. As our dear pastor comes now to conclude this service, may everything that is done in this special time of the service be done to bring honor and glory to yourself. My precious name.